This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. This is Nabil Mamoun, your host from Hawaii. This is Philip Kobans from Brooklyn, New York. And Brian Takesi here from Richmond, Virginia. Brian, thank you very much for taking the time and joining us on the Nomad Futures podcast. We do share quite a lot of interest. We do serve uh, in a couple of capacities on a board level, and at the core of it, our interest is the same, being technologists. So I wanted you to join our podcast. Let's start with uh, a little bit of your background, who you are, what you do, and where you're at in your career. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me on the uh, on the podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah, my, my, my career in technology and business has been um, anything pre- predictable, I guess you could say. Um, I, I started off in technology consulting, and I'm, I'm probably dating myself a little bit, but if we go back to the, the mid-90s, it obviously looked a lot different than it does now. I, I didn't come from the traditional pr- programming background. I was, I was always more of a functional technologist. So I, I grew up in the, in the BA, QA, and PM ranks. Uh, a lot of what we were doing back then, as, as I'm sure you guys know and can appreciate, a lot of client server work and then a lot of work on migrating products and solutions to the internet, to the web. So that was, that was where I, uh, I would say, largely cut my teeth in, in technology. I knew long before that that I wanted to be in the field, but, I, you know, and I had stints as, as, a, as a programmer. I took CS classes, but it was never, it was never really a technology-driven, you know, programming driven side for me. That, uh, that lasted for uh, about 10 years. Um, went back to business school. And at the time I was thinking, you know what, I think I want to change, try something different. Went to, uh, went to business school, came out of there and, um, and had some business facing roles, uh, general management roles, P&L roles. And that was when I really learned um, that you never, right, you, you're not going to get too far away from technology, especially in this day and age. A lot of the business critical projects and things we were doing were, were of a technical nature. We were talking about bringing products, you know, if I think about it in the mid 2000s, right, where were we focused on? Um, this was pre-iPhone, but we were still thinking about what does digital transformation look like? How do we bring more and more products into the hands of consumers? Most of my career has been in in insurance and financial services. Uh, financial services, I think, has been more on the bleeding edge of this than insurance. And we can talk about that if you want. But what I realized in, in the business facing roles is I was really just, I was just sitting on the other side of that coin. And so, you know, over the years, I've jumped back and forth between business and IT roles. I'm landed squarely back in IT now. But a lot of what I do today is, um, and I manage a number of application development teams. Um, a lot of what I do, though, is I connect um, within insurance. I connect the insurance-facing business customers uh, to our IT uh, uh, you know, back office. And what we're trying to do is really come up with new products and new solutions in the digital age. It's, it's less about how do you just maintain status quo. What we're really trying to do is push the thinking forward to, to set up the organization for, uh, for success, not just for the next few years, but for the next 10, 20 years. So in doing so, what do you think has been the biggest challenge for you? And we both experienced there is an old guard that's really been guarding uh, the digital transformation. We've been at it for the last 15, 20 years. What's been the biggest challenge for you? You know, I think the biggest challenge for me has just been the pace of change and trying to keep up with it. The, the, 
you know, the, the older I get, the, um, you know, as my role has increased over time in, in responsibility, you, you, you can't possibly stay as connected in the weeds. And so for somebody who was uh, always very comfortable in the details, I think just understanding that at some point you step further and further away from that, um, but you've still got to keep a pulse on it has been, uh, has been a challenge. Um, I, I think if I were to tell my younger self something, it would probably be uh, pay more attention in those leadership and, and, and people management courses um, that, than you did at the time. I think, um, I, I think what I'm seeing now mostly is that it's, it's largely about how do you drive change right? Drive organizational change. And a lot of that is EQ. It's not IQ. And it's certainly not um, necessarily technical competence or technical expertise per se. So it's a mix of quantitative and qualitative skills. How do you balance all that? And how do you connect with people? I, I think that's, for me, that's going to be one of the interesting things that comes out of this entire uh, pandemic situation we're in. We can't replace people to people connections. We can change them, right? We're, we're all uh, doing this remotely now as opposed to perhaps in a conference room or in a, in a, in a you know, in a, uh, in a studio. But um, how we do that going forward, I think is going to be critical for, um, you know, organizations that get that right, I think are going to have a, a big advantage over organizations that don't. The last 90 days, have you seen any major transformation in the old guard that's been managing mining people in a certain way and not really progressed uh, with the digital transformation? I I have seen open minds now to and and this is probably not the first time someone's saying this uh, on your podcast, but the the whole working remotely, working from home situation, um, and, and we were well set up for it. You know, we're we're largely virtual, and and it was it was not something that was brand new to us. But I think just the sheer scale of what we were able to pull off, and, and what not just we like my organization, but just society, like the number of people that have been able to pivot and do this, I think has opened up minds to this can actually be done. I think there's a, there's sort of a cliche old guard of like, Oh, if someone's at home, they're not working. Right. That was kind of the old mindset. You had to have somebody in a chair that you could keep an eye on them. But what I don't think folks were ready for was just on on this scale that the technology, the infrastructure could support it. And that, that society could actually pivot and pull it off. I don't. I think it's too early to tell whether it's sustainable, but certainly in the interim, uh, I, I would say it's been successful. I think in general, you know, one of the things that's um, that's amazing about the the world we're living in now is that that when necessity is is the mother of um, you know kind of invention, you know, a lot of the the, the folks that might have been. Uh, reticent to allow large scale working from home and stuff. I mean, there's nothing they can do right now, you know, and, and a lot of those same elements that they were saying they didn't like about working from home. If you're working from home, you're not really working. Now they're the ones working from home because everybody's in the same boat and they can see it's actually the opposite, right? And you're actually spending more of your time working because there's no separation between work and home. And we'll get to that a little bit later, the idea right. of, of creating you know, that, that balance. Mm -hmm. So you don't have essentially this, you know, 24 hour work day, but getting back to kind of your background, the thing that's, I think is so important and you touched on a little bit is this ability to kind of articulate technology and bridge that gap between people that don't inherently understand it and, you know, the people that do that don't inherently understand how to communicate uh, about it or get frustrated with, with communicating with people. Based on the fact that you have that kind of combo uh, experience, you know, you, you, you live the kind of 
original digital transformation back in, let's call it the olden days, the mid-90s. And, and then you went to business school, so you have that kind of dual-headed philosophy where you were in the technical world, out in the weeds, and then you understood the kind of back office element of it. How important do you think that ability is, the communication ability versus, you know, the, the, the in-the-weeds technical ability in, in what you do? You know, and I think for, for folks listening, I, I still think it really just depends on what you want to do. I think for me, for what I wanted to do, it was absolutely critical. I've said over the years um, to a lot of people who are, who are interested in climbing, you know, whatever corporate ladder or organizational ladder you want to, you want to, you know, you, you want to reference. It's important early on to have technical skills and to be an expert in something that, by the way, being an expert in something is good, just good life advice, but it, it gets harder and harder, I think, the further removed you get. But then what you realize is that you're actually, you have expertise. It's just not easily pinpointed onto a specific skill. Like you're not a, you're no longer a Java developer expert, right? You're no longer a, you know, a full stack engineer with that expertise in the, you know, that's a modern example, but what got you to where you are doesn't necessarily get you any further is a conversation I've had with a lot of people over the years. Um, and I think for the younger generation thinking about like, where do you go? Um, it, it's, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for us to predict what the world looks like in 10 years. And I don't think we have to, I think you can just you know, decide what it is you want to do. I think understanding who you are as a person is really important. I think, um, this is just my opinion. I think we could do more earlier on in, uh, in, you know, K through 12 education to help people understand who they are, like the personality type, right? Whether it's Myers-Briggs or other assessments, like who, who are people and, and what, what are their strengths, right? What are the opportunities that they would have if they want to go focus on that? Um, this came up in one of the previous podcasts, you know, we, um, I have young kids, um, yeah, a three-year-old and a seven-year-old, and we were looking at schools, particularly in Brooklyn, you know, uh, in, in the private school Brooklyn world, you have a lot of places that now focus on, you know, a lot of the early de uh, developmental theories and philosophies like the Montessori method and, and you know, the things that, that have been birthed from that. And this came up on a previous co uh, podcast as well, this idea that, I think the 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 going theory about early childhood education is that you don't force a curriculum on them. You kind of allow them to gravitate towards what in the classroom that is set up in a particular way that interests them, whether they're a builder or whether they're someone that gravitates towards you know, reading or, or a painting or, or the sand table or whatever. And you kind of just enable them to grow in that particular area so that you're not, you know, forcing something on them so that the, what they're experiencing is actually something they enjoy learning about, which makes the whole learning process all the better. I think the same thing translates, and I'd love to get your opinion on it. I assume it'll be it'll be the same as mine to the workplace. You know, it, there there are so many roles, there are so many functions across finance, technology, accounting, no 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 matter what, that allowing people the flexibility of not necessarily focusing on their compartmentalized you know thing that they do, and allowing them to explore and, and, and work in areas that are actually of interest to them um, gets you significantly more you know, productivity out of them and just a happier work environment in general. You manage many teams, right? Is it, have, you, have you seen that? I have. I have. And I, I think it's important. I think you hit the nail on the head with respect to like, how do you keep an engaged workforce satisfied over the long term? I, I, you've got to start with a foundation that 
for each of the, for the individual, right? I mean, back to the previous question, right? You have to know what you're good at, right? And, and that's your foundation. And then you can branch out and you can take risks from there. I think the earlier that people can establish that, uh, even before the, the working years, uh, right? I think it sets up folks for, for success longer term. I mean, if you look at, it's, it's hard to analyze and I, I, I tend to, I tend to probably skew more quantitative uh, than qualitative. A lot of times, I, I was I was into math and science. I mean, I was the first. Um, you know, we were sort of the first generation group with video games, and so you know, a lot of just a lot of that is is in my DNA. But um, but if you look at if you look at folks that are extremely confident, um, and you were to try to dissect that, I, I, I suspect what we would find is it's, it's. I mean, a lot of it's personality, but a lot of it is just rooted in they've got a base they can snap back to that they know they're good at. And so, um, so what we do, we do try to rotate uh, folks in roles. And I think technology offers those opportunities. It's one thing to have a technical, uh, whether it be, you know, quote unquote functional in, in IT or a technical bent. I, I think it's, I think it's important to be able to branch out over time, but obviously know what you want or, or, or know what you know, what you're asking for. Um, Cause the roles over time, the roles can be very, very different. I've been surprised for what it's worth. I've been surprised that we've had, as, a, as, as I'm sure a lot of organizations have, right? You're talking about retraining uh, a workforce given the pace of change. I, I've seen a lot of willingness uh, for folks to learn new skills. I think more so than perhaps um, the media uh, right, or, or the conventional wisdom would have us suggest is out there. Um, when you start to get into things like, you know, I mean, top trends today, right? We're talking about artificial intelligence and RPA and you, you read the sound bites like, oh, it's going to put everybody out of work. I, I don't think so. I mean, we've seen proof that over time, it just leads to new roles. It needs to, leads to new, um, you know, people doing different things instead of the same old things. So, but I, I, I do think you've got to have the ability to the structure the organization set up to allow people to try those things. So a couple of things that really come out of it, Brian, are uh, you've got to be able to articulate and you've got to have good communication skills to get the message across. Yep. Okay. Yep. Unless you just, right, unless you uh, just want to be a, uh, a programmer forever. Well, I mean, there, 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 there are people that need to do that too, right? right. In, the, in the current state of affairs, uh, you mentioned people are willing to listen and, and, and make the transition whereby... There's that fear in the industry with RPA machine learning and, and other technologies and platforms that are coming into play that we might end up getting rid of people's jobs. What are you seeing in your space? Is there a human capital reduction? Those resources are being allocated and uh, used in other places. Those people are willing and able to make that investment in their careers. Yeah, I, 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 a little bit of everything, um, but I, what I would say, I mean, uh, you guys can keep me honest. I, I'm seeing more demand now for tech resources than ever. Uh, we're not seeing even even now. We're not seeing in this in this current pandemic situation. We're not seeing that uh, suddenly the market's flooded with um, a lot of tech resources that are that are on the bench, you know, to use a consulting term that are just waiting for work. Uh, I'm seeing that there are major gaps in certain areas, um, and I'm seeing people that are willing to to want to jump into those areas and learn. But if you think about cybersecurity as an example, we have, we have folks who are shifting from roles and, and experiences that have nothing to do with security and are jumping into that field because it's interesting and because it's something they want to learn. That is the future. Yeah. I mean, it's a big part of it. Right. And, and so the ability to train folks now, it, you know, it's, it's, it's funny if you ever see a resume with somebody who says they have uh, you know, 20, 25 years of cybersecurity experience, you should probably question that because <laughs> 
I, I, you know, we've all been doing this. You guys are roughly my age. We've been doing this for 25 years. And, um, you know, I, I, I you always kind of laugh when you see that kind of thing because, you know, the modern thinking around this has only been around for what, five, eight years, maybe 10 years at most. So mm-hmm. I, I think it really does come back to, you know, you're going to have a portion of the population that is late adopting or, or not adopting at all. Um, and I think that applies to skills in the workforce as well. And then you're going to have folks who are hungry. And I, I don't see technology. It's complex. And for folks who don't understand it, I think they can be intimidated by it. But I don't see it as all that different from any other area where if you're interested in learning, you put in hard work, that you couldn't have a very fulfilling career doing different things, right? That you don't have to pick something out of the gate. The thing that I find um, is is unique about kind of this generation that's coming into the workforce is, yes, you have the guys that say they've been cybersecurity experts for the last 25 years or, right. or working on, you know, building critical infrastructure for the last 150 years. Right, um, right. But there, there is no one that is that far removed from a need for something involving cybersecurity. Like everybody has, you know, a computer, a server in their hands, you know, with, with an iPhone. Everyone is using technology with such prevalence. And the current generation entering the workforce essentially grew up on it. You know, the iPhone was out where, when, when a lot of people, you know, that are now graduating college, you know, uh, when, when they were growing up. So just the, the notion of tech being this far removed thing that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily impact, it impacts every vertical and any, anybody that has any, you know, interest in anything is somehow involved with technology. I'll, br- I'll, I'll bring it back to one more point on the early development learning that I've made in previous podcasts, which is that every kid coming out of school right now really understands how all of these elements of technology work, in some cases better than us who have been in the industry for, for so many years. They just, there's not that fundamental en- uh, understanding of why it works. And I think that the, the confidence in technology comes from that understanding of why and that curiosity and, and, and all that, don't you think? I, I do. And I think the why is how you, you know, the folks who can do that, the folks who are interested in that probably are more likely to make the connection to the next step function change. Yeah. Right. If you if you understand the why, you can then dissect the where, where it's working, where it isn't working, and where do we go from here. But I think, you know, it, the iPhone's the most pertinent relevant example of recent times of like, it was just a complete game changer everywhere. Um, Think about the number of industries it disrupted, the number of products it put out of business. But, you know, we could go back to, uh, we could go back to the mid nineties. We could go back to email. And I would argue relative to what we had before, it was probably just as impactful. And if you went back even further, right? Like I think there are these examples over time, you know, and it's all relative to, the change, what we had before and the change that was introduced uh, and, and how we adapt and, and who embraces it, who doesn't, um, they tend to be, at least to me, looking at it from a, an experience curve standpoint or a statistical standpoint, they seem to be similar in nature. You know, my question would be, so what, what's next, right? How, how big does the next change have to be? Um, exactly. I mean, I've tried to explain to my seven-year-old what a fax machine is. And for the life of me, I can't. He does not understand what I'm talking right, about at right. all. Um, right. He just doesn't. He doesn't. Well, think, think about it. we had. You know, we had wired remotes. I'm, I'm really dating myself now. We had wired <laughs> remotes, right? I don't even know why they called it. All right, everybody. Uh, Brian Decasey is older than 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 I am. I just want to make sure that everybody's aware of that. That was a big deal, though, when we finally got one. And now, of course, you know, now we have, you know, we have remote controls forever, and everybody just takes it for granted. I just so. blinked and changed the channel on my TV. 
Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of great points there, Brian. I mean, you talk about the change in the adoption. So going back in the industrial revolution to, to now, the, the timelines have started to shrink. iPhone was roughly about a year and a half to two before it was really streamlined and it took over the Nokia's and the droids and other other manufacturers for that matter. Mm-hmm. Pokemon Go, which was what a year and a half or two years ago, had the highest following in less than 15 days. So it's a, it's a level of interest and in, in how or who you're going after. So the question I have is, based on as we go forward, do you think education is going to play a major role, especially considering that we have not had educational change from K through 12, or even for that matter, the higher education uh, since the Industrial Revolution? <laughs> um, that is a great question. Um, and, I, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in it. I, I think we've got a good opportunity here with what we're facing right now. I think the idea of how, how is learning going to change if this persists for a while? I, let, let's say this all ends in nine months to a year. Uh, we get a vaccine. We all go back to normal. I think that would be a real, um, fr- from, from specifically from your question on the opportunity we have to think about how we reinvent education, I, I think it would be a, a missed opportunity. I think there are folks who would argue it's, it's working. It's worked for a long time. Why, why change it? Um, and I think you'd have just as many people on the other side, you know, forcefully saying the model has to change. It has to adapt and evolve. I think just the having the technology at our fingertips will allow some of that to happen. I mean, think about it. We're like we couldn't have done distance learning, uh, I don't know, five years ago. And a lot of institutions are still struggling. The state of California closed every single distance learning school this week. Yeah. Here's what I worry about. Uh, especially since a lot of the colleges now, or they're saying it's, um, and I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm done with this. Uh, I, I mean, we have enough challenges doing this in the workforce, but I can't imagine going to college right now or, or graduate school. The, the, the person, the person interaction, like the value you get out of that, it, it's, it, I don't know that it will ever be the same on a screen anytime soon, right? And maybe if we go fully VR, you could, you could replicate some of that, but um, that, that may be something that's just a lost part of this for a while uh, that, that we have to replace with something else. But I, I do think technology will continue to lag. I, I, I think the idea that technology is going to suddenly become as a topic, right? Like if you think about STEM, and STEM's gotten a major foothold in a lot of, in a lot of the schools. And it's, it's really like I'm thinking about like over the last 10 years, 15 years or so. I think if that trend continues, that's good for us. But, and you guys, I think you guys know a lot more about this than I do. So I'd love your thoughts. It, it feels like a lot of the technology-based training and education doesn't happen until, until college, until university. And, and at that point, it's, it's, it's an opt-in kind of a scenario, as opposed to we're trying to educate everybody on it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a cultural change. I mean, we live in a, in a society that both the couples are working. Uh, there is no time for the for the kids, so you're not really spending that quality time in, in raising your kids. Versus, you go back 30, 40 years ago, it was a different environment. You could have probably done that then. Yeah, uh, the cost that's changing now too, though, and that's starting to change. I think a lot of folks are starting to reevaluate whether, at least here in the U.S., whether the dual working family model still makes sense. And and, and then, what do you educate your children on? You know, how much of it is 
the traditional K through 12? Well, frankly, it's, I mean, now it's, it's almost impossible, right? I mean, thankfully I have the benefit of my, my wife being able to kind of help our kids through kind of online learning and all that stuff. But if, if we have both of us with, with full-time jobs where we both have to be on, you know, Zoom conference calls all hours of the day, there is no, especially without the ability to even, let's say we could afford, you know, childcare and all that stuff. At this point, you know, you can't even bring them into into the house. So what do you do? And that's an experience of millions of people. I mean, it's not like, it's not theoretical. I mean, it's theoretical to me because I have the benefit of, of having a wife that can support it. But in reality, I think there, there are two points. One is how can you possibly expect those kids to be engaged without a, an adult like a parent that can kind of hold their hand through it? Um, and the other is, the teachers that are teaching all these classes, even in the most progressive schools, they're all learning these platforms at the same time as the children. So they couldn't they couldn't possibly educate the children in the whys and and you know the intricate elements. Even though I, I think the argument can be made that the children, my kids right now, are Zoom experts. So there is a practical benefit to all this in terms of skills that they'll likely need in how to interact remotely. They understand a lot more about. What I do in, in in my world based on just their practical experience with, with Zoom and whatnot, but the teachers are just not equipped. The, the curriculums, even the most progressive curriculums out there, are not set up to, to show them like what the underlying infrastructure is, like how it works. Right now, it's magic, frankly, to the teacher, to the student, to the administration, and to everyone except the three of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 even to me, because you know, it took me a while to figure out how to change my name. Correction, two of us. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's um. Uh, yeah, I I agree. I, I mean, we're we're one of those families. We both work, so it's um. You know, we're we've acknowledged it's not. This isn't sustainable long term. But we, you know, we've joked the the old model, the old the old saying, "It takes a village." We're like, "Oh, what if that was the model, right? What if we went back to that's the model?" And within any given community, you've got a bunch of different expertise, and the, and right, the children that come out of that community are going to have a very different education potentially than, you know, somewhere else. Through through this process and where you're at in your career, what do you think, or would you say, is one of the unique skill sets you've developed? I, yeah, I, I think it's the, and I, I wouldn't have predicted this coming into it. I think initially I was just like, yeah, I like working with computers. You know, I was one of those kids building computers from scratch. And, um, you know, when I was in, when I was in um, undergrad, I, my, my, you know, my part-time job that I had at the school was to, um, to work at the, uh, the dining hall. And it took me about two months to realize I'm not doing this. So I went and worked at the IT help desk. So it, this was always going to happen. It's sort of like, you're, you, you know, you're going to do it whether you realize it or not. And eventually I kind of realized it and embraced it. But I, I would say the ability to both connect IT with the business, I use the term business loosely, like IT with um, non-IT customers, maybe we'll say it that way. And vice versa. So understanding both sides and being able to be the intermediary or the liaison. I, 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 I'm, I continue to be surprised at the size of that gap in not just insurance. Most of my, most of my career has been in insurance and financial services. But, and I think in insurance, it's particularly telling. It's a, it's a bigger gap because insurance is you know, a bit more complex than your typical, uh, your typical sector. But it's a gap everywhere from what I see. Like you, you've got folks who are technologists, but have a really hard time relating to their customers. Um, and then you've got, you've got 
customers, whether they're in the organization or outside, that, that just don't understand technology at all. So, you know, for me, that, that's kind of been my career path. And, you know, I think that's, that's something that's inherently achievable from anybody who's listening to your, to your podcast, right? Whether they tend to skew one way or the other, you just have to work hard at the other half and, and just try to think about, like, how do you relate what you, what you know and what your sort of default expertise is to the other side? That I would say that's, uh, that's where I've kind of... Again, I mean, given given our uh, experience right now, I mean, the, the majority of in, whether it's the insurance industry or any vertical, I, I have to assume that the majority, whether people like it or not, of the 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 functions that are most customer facing, or whether they were in the process of being digitized or digitally transformed or whatever the story is, there's no question the brick and mortar element of those businesses was on the way out before. And if anything, this is going to, this has to force their hand, whether there's a vaccine or not, you know, the, the idea that people are just going to go back to, you know, waiting in line uh, at a bank to do transactions or waiting in line to talk to their insurance agent to, to sign up for service uh, without using a, a phone and an app has got to be, you know, evolutionary at the end of its evolutionary cycle. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think this just shines another another light on it. Um, right. You know, whether it's the, the remote workforce or it's how consumers now interact in a socially distanced, you know, or a shelter in place world. Um, Cause I think we're going to have fits and starts with this. Like we'll, we'll probably open up and then we may close again in certain areas based on outbreaks and whatnot. But I, I, I agree. I, I think the, the digital transformation that's been going on is a lot bigger than what we're seeing just from COVID-19. Um, um, do you think it'll be tra- generational? I mean, do you think that, you know, the, the fact that all of us have experienced this, even if they come up with a, um, you know, vaccine and everyone gets it, let's say that's two years out, two and a half years, whatever the, the timing is uh, that you want to listen to, uh, th- we've experienced this, right? So we always know it's out there. So I can't imagine anyone is just going to be comfortable once a vaccine because COVID-19 is here, the next COVID-20, COVID-21, COVID-22. I mean, there's going to be, you know, the, the, the next ones that are, that that are at least you know front of mind. Although I've I've always been surprised at the the lack of attention span and the and the lack of memory of of the human race, particularly Americans. <laughs> but we, uh, yeah, we're we're not great at history or remembering history uh, <laughs> right. until it's until it's staring us in the face. I think. Yeah, you know what do they say? Like never invade Russia in the winter. Um, <laughs> humanity's made that mistake more than once. So I don't, it's not just the Americans, but yes, I, I think we do have very short attention spans. Hopefully, this is you know it, it, yeah, to use insurance uh, lingo. Hopefully, this is a one in hundred year event because I'm not sure we're ready for this to be a one in five year event. Uh, um, but I think it is a catalyst. I think it is a catalyst for change. I think what you will see, and, and past examples have shown this as well, right? If you look at most recessions, there are organizations that are ready to seize the moment. There's always some contraction, right? And there's always some, to keep it simple, there's always some expense and cash flow management that happens in recessions. But the, the companies that invest during that time and they make bets, and, 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 and when those bets pay off, you see them leapfrog ahead of the competition uh, time and time again. So uh, it's no different in insurance than it is in banking. It's a, it's a, right, if you just look at the stock market, right, it's a great time to buy if you know what to buy and if you have the, if you have the capital, right, if you have the money. So um, I think you will see a lot of winners and losers come out of this. I think it'll take some time for the dust to settle, but um, I, I see this as, a, as an interesting recession because we know exactly what caused it. Um, yeah. at a gate. But, I, but we I, don't I, know how long it's going to take to come out of it. 
Yeah, I, I think we're looking at more of a Great Depression than a recession, Brian. We might be. We might be. How far do you think we are at? Could it nine months, a year, two years, three years? I think there's. it's going to be very hard to fast track a vaccine. I think there's still questions on whether a vaccine will ultimately work, um, right? Or we're going to have to revisit, much like the flu, right? You get a vaccine every year for the flu. Um, because it because it mutates and changes, and the way we attack it, right, the way we develop our vaccines, um, it, it, right, it's it's dependent on um, on those being stable because they, and they're not. So this, uh, you know, Phil, you said it earlier. Necessity is the mother of invention. I I don't believe the human race is going to tolerate this for five years. I, I think we're going to find a way. And and you know, one of the benefits that might come out of this is we might actually get a much better vaccine for the flu as well. Um, it might finally force us to think about how to just invent a better, a better vaccine or a better solution for this. Um, I, I'm, I'm very bullish on, on progress just in general. I, I, I don't think this is going to beat us. Um, there will be losers for sure. There are absolutely going to be losers that, that come out of this. Um, but I, whether it's a depression or a recession, I guess that that's going to ultimately depend on can, can, can businesses pivot fast enough? I've been I've been shocked at how fast the uh, the 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 restaurants uh, and you know I'm really only speaking for my area, but everybody's pivoted, right? Everybody's adapted very quickly. Um, do they do they stay in business? You know that remains to be seen. But I think I think the ability for uh, for this to be over quicker, right? Like as opposed to we're in this for ten years, we're in this for twelve years, like Great Depression mindset. Um, I, I think it's going to depend on whether whether folks can adapt. Um, I think the technology allows us to adapt a lot quicker than it has in the past. Um, think about if this had happened 20 years ago, right? I, I think we'd be in a much different place than, um, than now. How, how, how long do you think this shelter-in-place is going to last? You guys are uh, until the end of June now, aren't you, or till mid-July? Uh, we're Currently, we're June 10th, I believe. But I do believe a lot of the reports that are coming out that are saying we should expect something of a second wave in the fall, um, you know, whether that's just simply we've relaxed things and, and it starts spreading again, or if it's actually a, a mutation and a, and a, you know, a different strain, I, I don't know. I couldn't speak to, um, you know. Well, I also just think the combination of, of COVID and flu season together simultaneously is probably. Could be, could be bad. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 think, I think we're going to have fits and starts. I, I, I'm. I'm personally struggling to see how we have a normal school year. I, my, my daughters are seven and four, so we're, we're pretty much in the same boat, Phil. Mm. I, 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 I'm predicting, guys, we should just buckle up, sit back, and wait till uh, March of next year. Easy to say in Kona, Hawaii, man. Is it like really, really easy to say? Yeah, you're pretty well isolated over there. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got zero cases on, uh, on the island. Our, our governor actually just extended the time till uh, self-isolation till end of June. I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, are you a buzzword kind of guy? I I I can try. I I wouldn't okay. I wouldn't call myself a buzzword guy, but uh, I get so we'll start with buzzwords here: fake or real, net neutrality. Uh, real. Big data. I'll go real. Data mining. That's real. Actionable in analytics. I haven't heard that one before. We'll go false on that one. Artificial intelligence. Obviously, yes. Machine learning? Yes. Chatbots? Chatbots, yes. Augmented reality? Yes. Virtual reality? 
Yes. Robotics? Yes. Industry 4.0? No. Internet of Things? Internet of Things, yes. And that's a lot of what we focus, like what we're thinking about in the insurance uh, sector is how IoT will um, transform things for us. Quantum computing? Yes. Blockchain? Ah, blockchain. I'd like to see something happen with blockchain. (laughs) (laughs) All right, 5G? 5G? uh, Yes, and I don't think it caused the virus. (laughs) Yeah, expand on that a little bit, will you? Oh, I do. Yeah, I think it's. I, I think that's crazy. I, how, how these um, how these rumors start are beyond me. But uh, you know, when when folks are afraid, uh, don't underestimate the power of fear. Cloud, cloud. Yes. Okay. Edge computing. Edge computing. I've I've heard the term. I'm not as familiar with it, but I have heard of it, or at least I think I've heard of it. <laughs> Uh, anything as a service, like platform as a service, infrastructure. Platform, yeah, yeah. IaaS, PaaS, SaaS. Yep. Thoughts on uh, where we headed as for the future, the state of the future norm is concerned. Um, what is normal? The pace of change is increasing, as you said earlier. I'm a I'm a data guy, so you know I I don't know if anybody has ever plotted the pace of change in some you know graphical way. Um, it does seem to be accelerating, but I think um, period over period, I, right? If you think about, or like, are we on an exponential experience curve? Uh, we might be, and so we might expect the pace of change to keep accelerating like that. Um, but relative to the period before it, uh, it, 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 right? It may not be insurmountable or, or, or outside the realm for people to understand it. So I, I don't, I don't know that there's going to be a new normal necessarily. Um, I mean, obviously as it pertains to this, I think we're going to see a lot more folks working from home permanently. I mean, Twitter just announced uh, essentially to that effect that folks can work home forever if they wanted. I, I, I think you're going to see a lot more openness to different working arrangements, um, just like sort of a forced acceptance of that reality by, by management in areas in companies that perhaps weren't open to it before. I think it presents a challenge of how do you then separate work and work and, you know, personal life. I think that's, you know, personally, I'm struggling with that. It's, it's hard now, even with a dedicated office, it's hard to disconnect. I, I think, um, I think there's going to be a transition here. Um, I think once, once we can safely emerge and we can get our children back into schools, I think it'll take a different shape. Um, I, at the hardest part, I mean, I used to work from home quite a bit and, and still did uh, even now before this happened. The hardest part of working from home now is it's not just me working from home. You know, everybody's here. Uh, the children are here. So um, I could see a new normal where, um, where a, a, lot of, a lot of children that used to go to daycare, for example, uh, for aftercare, don't. Um, and where folks are working modified schedules either in the office or at home. Um, and and just realizing there are different ways to do this. Yeah, I talk about an industry that's been that that's been absolutely obliterated. That might not exist in the same form. The daycare, right. the childcare industry in general is just um, you know having a really rough go of it, and it's difficult to to see a real roadmap of when that industry comes back. I wanted to touch on one thing, um, which is um, you know about about kind of the new normal, um, and. You know, what's interesting is how quickly people have embraced not only e-learning, but things like telemedicine in ways that were never really embraced. Everybody, you know, you had like maybe one out of every five doctors or so that would even get on the phone with you, much less 
like do a FaceTime or, or, or a, a Zoom conference call. And now, you know, they prefer it for, for the majority of things. Mm-hmm. And as much as I wrote an article about this, that's on, that's on our website, this is a little plug. Um, as much as you would think that everyone's sheltering place, everyone's staying at home would make the world feel exponentially larger because we're all kind of physically isolated. There are certain elements of it that actually make everyone closer together. So this idea of like, I'm in New York City, so we have access to, you know, the best doctors because they're physically here. The idea of not necessarily focusing on those regional kind of gaps where through telemedicine, a guy in Richmond, Virginia can access the same doctor in the same way that I can in Brooklyn, and whether that's going to change the dynamics of how uh, if it's even to get that existential, where it changes the dynamics of how people are gravitating towards large urban environments like New York City, like you know Los Angeles, like you know Honolulu, um, whether whether that's going to significantly change and and change the, those those demographics. What do you think about that? I, I think we're already starting to see people get out of New York. Um, I, I think some of that's just a reaction to to what what the city's going through right now. Um, but no, I I, I, I yeah I. I, I, I think there's, there are benefits to living in an urban environment that can't be replicated in, in suburbia or in rural America. But, you know, I think for the, for the majority of the population, I could see a shift. I could see a shift further out um, because you, the, 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 what you were there for, right, the convenience and the access, just the straight-up access has been replaced, right? Technology has made that easier. I think you gave a good example of that. Um, I, I think education is is going to be a really interesting thing to watch um, as far as whether, you know, think about like the, uh, think about the private school phenomenon, right? And what you see in a lot of the urban areas where um, you you don't have good public schools, you have better private schools. And then that, that just becomes class warfare, essentially. Um, how, how that could change, right? Because all of a sudden now you don't, right? That's not your only option anymore. Um, that could be an interesting way to see this play out. It's an opportunity for people to actually have the life and work balance too, uh, whereby you don't need both the parties to, uh, to, to be working. Um, you can spend more quality time with your family. And it also gives, I believe, an opportunity for people to move away. I think it's, I think it's an opportunity for sure. I think capitalism may, and this may sound a little pessimistic, um, so I apologize, but I, I think capitalism may still trump that. I, I think ultimately, um, I, I, I don't know if a lot of folks are working as hard as they are because they want to or because they need to. Um, and I think you've probably got a combination of the, you know, the folks who do want to want to climb the proverbial ladder and then the folks who just need to provide for their families. But, um, you know, I, 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 I do know we're still very fortunate to, you know, for those of us who, who have the opportunities to work and, and have jobs, you know, there are a lot of folks who don't, but I, I, yeah. I it'd be, it'll be interesting to see if it plays out because it's definitely forced um, you know, my family to take a hard look. Like we've looked at it, we've had that exact same conversation. Like, do we want to continue doing this? Do we need to? Like, would it? Yeah, change the lifestyle. Yeah, it, 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 you 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 have a minute to just take a break and look at things differently. Um, whether folks 
and act on that or not, I, I think is the open question. That's yeah. the amazing thing. That's the, the amazing thing is that opportunity to achieve a course correction. There are so many arguments that we have, even in my household, about whether you know we would move to the suburbs or not. And it's always, well, the next school year, well, we have to be here for X, Y, and Z event, or we started camp, or this one's starting that, that school. All of those things are out the window. Everyone is in the same boat. There is no different. I'm staring at a city that is you know, essentially, you know, on pause. Right. Um, but I could be doing this theoretically from, from anywhere. So a lot of the, the amount of time that I work, the amount of money that I have to earn is tied to, you know, the, the cost associated with living in, in a world that doesn't really exist anymore. So those costs are kind of artificially imposed. And if more companies are going to embrace the ability to work from home, then you can still have the same career, essentially earn the same money, whether you're in New York City or you're in Omaha. It, it shouldn't really make a difference. Yeah, yeah, or or, or really anywhere. Um, I, it's been for a lot of my career. Uh, you know, I, I I came back from college. I worked in New York City, and then eventually moved away. Um, you know, eventually ended up in Richmond, Virginia. But I, I've had that exact conversation. I, I can't tell you how many times. Which is, in any small, you know, we'll call them secondary cities in this country, the options you had were limited. Right, if you wanted to not travel all the time. I think that entire paradigm has shifted um, and it was already starting to shift, but I think this is just going to rip that bandaid off. I think you, you, we're at a point where you, you probably can live anywhere um, and, and, and have a, have a much wider selection of jobs that you could do remotely. And just like that, the pessimism turned to optimism. <laughs> Ryan, do you think we'll ever get to a four day work week? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's capitalism. I, 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 you know, it it would it would be nice. It, I think it would be nice. I I think that would be a, and I think what you're going to see is people would still work that fifth day, but the the expectation to maybe work the sixth and the seventh day would would perhaps lessen. Well, I'll pivot for a second. If 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 manufacturing output fundamentally changes as as a result of this, maybe maybe it makes sense. Right from a cost structure standpoint, maybe all of a sudden this makes sense. Um, but uh, I, I would be a I would be a proponent of it. Um, although that said, for those of you listening that are interested in a, a life in technology and IT, um, I'm not sure there is such a thing as a four day work week. So it's a, um, it's a eight day work week. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, you you got to balance all that. But um, I I think we as a uh, and this is a very U.S. centric comment too because I know you're a global podcast now. It, I, I think the idea of a of a four day work week and having more work life balance would be a, would be appreciated by a lot of people. I I just don't know if if um, if it's not four ten hour days, right? And it's the same number of hours at the end of the day. I, I don't know if, if if a lot of the population could afford it. Hey, by the way, I just want to make one quick correction. It's not work and life balance. It's life and work balance. That's the problem right there. <laughs> Many science fiction movies present a very dark future of what we're going to see in the next few years. Are you an optimist or pessimistic person as it entails to the future of humanity? Um, I am, despite my pessimistic comments about capitalism and, and it's, um, you know, what it's doing to our, our work life or life work balance, as you say. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I'm very bullish. Uh, as I said, I'm very bullish on humanity. I, I think we reach a point with certain things where we just, um, we're not going to tolerate the, the, the circumstances and we'll find a way to invent ourselves out of it. Um, we are... Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm not even sure we could we could 
I, I'm sure it can be argued, but I think we are in the most peaceful period in human history ever right now. Um, and despite the clashes and the conflicts that we have around the world, I think we continue to trend toward uh, having a more peaceful planet. So um, I, I'm very bullish on our ability to think our way and better way at it, not just this, but what's coming for us. And that isn't to say that there aren't going to be losers and there may be there may be losers on a very large scale but there are also going to be winners on a large scale i think it'll be interesting to see how the middle the the quote-unquote middle class um and the lower middle class collectively around the world fare from this um you know there there are a number of um there are a number of economies outside the u.s that are in in peril right now as well and to see how they rebound i think will give us a good glimpse into globally what's going to happen but um but no i i i don't i don't think this is even close to a knockout punch for us i think we're gonna be just fine that's good to hear but however on that note what i'm seeing is that there's a lot of investment going into emerging markets underdeveloped markets well for that matter like africa and uh, singapore and a lot of asian countries there's a lot of u.s dollars particularly in the technology space that are moving out there do you believe that it's actually equalizing the the playing field i think time will tell um i i I think you know the the calls for nationalism and bringing the spending back i I think they're worth listening to but I, i i mean it's it's if technology's taught us nothing else, it's that it's a very, very small world now. And, and I think it's going to be awfully hard to, to counteract, even if somebody wanted to, to counteract the, the globalism trends that we're seeing. So I, I think it's equalizing things. But, you know, if you think about for the U.S., right, and if, I'm not sure if your comment was meant to suggest that, like, it's the, the, the influence, the balance of power or whatnot is shifting from the U.S. to Asia, I think. I think potentially, but I think it's also an opportunity for the U.S. to invent itself into the next, right, into the next phase of this. Um, I think there's still a tremendous amount of ability for this country um, to invent the next big thing. Um, that the next big thing may come out of uh, may come out of Asia. I, I think the opportunities are there if folks want to seize it. Um, but I think it is giving other countries and other economies uh, a, a better first hand, uh, right, better first poker hand to play, if you will. Um, I, you know, I, I, I still think there's a lot we can do not to necessarily level the playing field. Cause I think that implies one side loses and another side gains and that's how you balance it out. But I, I think there are win-win opportunities all over the world. And I think if we look at it that way, if we think about what a win-win could look like, regardless of where you live or what your vantage point is, um, I, I think we'd be in a better place for it. I think a bullish a bullish view of it would be, you know, the the better the emerging countries do, the more customers there are to 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 utilize the things that we invent, you know. So I think, you know, there's there's that that's where the majority of the consumer base, the untapped consumer base lies in those emerging markets. So I think it's incumbent on on all of us to recognize that and understand that investments and support of emerging markets both politically and structurally and economically um, are, are to everyone's collective long-term benefit. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think- I yeah. become the optimist on this thing. I'm supposed to be the pessimist. <laughs> are you the pessimist? Yeah. I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering which one of you is the pessimist on this thing. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, the word collectively, I think is the, is the, the key point. I think collectively, 
as a society, yes. I, I think what you see, right, the, the natural defensive reactions from some some groups are, right, there are some groups that, that stand to lose. I mean, that's just, I think that's just the nature of life. And, um, you know, how, how, do, how do groups think their way out of this or how do groups evolve and, and adapt their way out of this? But, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I read a statistic recently, uh, I'm gonna throw an insurance data point at you since uh, that's the field I work in. I, something to the effect of 80% of all insurable risks globally are uninsured. And and that's not just because folks can self-insure. Uh, a lot of that is um, they, they either can't afford the insurance, but more likely there isn't a product offering, right? There isn't, econ- there isn't an economy around that. So, you know, when we think about from an insurance standpoint, it's not how to, it's not really just how do I steal share from a competitor in, in a U.S. or in a U.K. or a Euro market. Um, or, or, you know, increasingly so an Asian market, but it's, you know, how do you, how do you get more offerings out there? How do you, how do you jumpstart an economy by offering some protection? What are some of the good things in your opinion that are going to come out of it? That is COVID-19. I think more flexibility for folks. I mean, we've hit on that for a while. I think just more flexibility on a, on a, you know, where you work, how you work, uh, I, I think is going to be a big benefit. I, I hope that it, it leads to more family time, just more connected time uh, with loved ones and, and a new appreciation for perhaps something that um, we've all just kind of, perhaps we swung too far in the opposite direction on. But I think it is also going to present massive opportunities for for certain, uh, for certain companies and for certain uh, countries even to, to leapfrog ahead. And, and it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. So it's... Um, any, anytime you have a bit of a contraction, you, you've got an opportunity to, um, when others are not acting, to catch up and or, or leapfrog ahead. The glass is always full. Uh, advice would you give the younger generation that's potentially looking to get into the technology space? Um, I, I think a lot of what makes you successful is just your work ethic, whether it's technology or anything else. So I think you know, just the ability to show up every day and work hard and, and really be passionate about what you're doing. I think that's the hardest part, especially at such a young age. Like, wh- what is it you're passionate about? What do you want to do so that it's not a job? And I know it's cliche. A lot of folks say that. But um, but I would say it's, you know, find something you want to do. Find find a place that you can go. And if it's technology, great, right? Find a place where you can go where you can do the most good. And um, and I think technology offers, if, if folks don't want the same thing day in, day out, you know, it's funny. I... I I, I was sort of on the same, like, uh, my parents wanted me, to, wanted me to be a doctor uh, for a while. I mean, I eventually, you know, sort of told them, like, there's, there's no way that's going to happen. Um, you know, every time I see blood, I pretty much pass out. So <laughs> probably not a great career choice. But can you, if you think about it, think about folks that were in our position and then had to commit to, I don't even know how many years it is. What is it? Is it 12, 16 years now? you know, to come all the way through that program and what they've come into, right? Like what they, what they would have graduated into in this, you know, in the United States, as far as what the medical field looks like now, it almost feel like a bait and switch, right? So, um, and you're, and you're kind of pot committed at that point to doing that. So, you know, I would, I would tell folks, technology offers you a lot of flexibility. We don't know where it's going to go. And if you're okay with that uncertainty, but you can kind of embrace it, I think, um, I certainly don't think you'll be bored. And I think uh, the opportunity just for continuous learning over the course of your career is, um, is, is, is right at the top or very close to the top of, of any of the types of careers you could, you could pick. You're still a doctor, Brian. You're just dissecting bits and bites. 
you, you touched on this earlier, this idea of, of confidence. I think there are two things, you know, coming out of what you said. One is curiosity, which is, you know, incredibly important. And then confidence, you know, this idea that um, you need to be confident enough in yourself to be able to ask the right questions and not pretend that you know something and not get the information because you're the only person you're fooling is yourself at the end of the day. Right. And I, you know, that is, they always say life is a confidence game. And we touched on confidence. I think confidence is the most important characteristics one could have. And I think it's, it, it, it's told to, to parents where kids are a little bit too confident now because parents just give them everything they want. But there's a, there's a balance, obviously. And that's how I'm going to end this, which is about, it's all about the children. The world is a topsy-turvy place uh, where, you know, we're, we're, we're in the world of technology. What, what, what changes have you made or what, what do you, how do you approach parenting in a way that prepares the children for this crazy world we have concocted? Ah, yes, the uh, the ultimate question, um, and, and it and it could probably apply to your technology question earlier too. Uh, as far as like, what does it take? Very, very strong uh, uh, belief in my you know between me and my wife and our family that um, a, a lot of what they're learning is great, and it's you know you're building skills here or there, but um, critical thinking, the ability to think critically, and I think that's something that is missing. Uh, in, you know, we need larger doses of that, not just in, uh, in, in math and science and right logic, but I think in all of the fields, um, just the ability to think critically and, and look at the world. Yeah, it's going to be a crazy ride, right? Buckle up. But your ability to think your way through it. Um, I, I think the ability to think critically is part of what will give you that confidence. Um, but it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I, you know, it, we don't, I don't know that we have, I worry about that a little bit from the whole, like if this becomes a, a, a long scale, like a large work from home scenario for a couple of years, like how do you teach that? Right. How do you, how do you, other than just day-to-day interaction, spending more time with your, I think if you looked at like one of the fundamentally, if you've ever been on an interview at Google or, or, or Amazon or Twitter or any of these, you know, companies that are known for their rigorous interviewing process, you know, they'll ask questions like, you know, how many jelly beans are in this, in this jar or whatever. And they don't want necessarily an answer. They want to know, you know, why you thought that answer is, is what it is. And what I find in parenting, and sometimes, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily practice what I preach, but kids just want the answer at times. And it's, you have to have the discipline to kind of ask questions back and forth, which is why having a Jewish grandmother answering a question with a question is something I grew up with, you know, um, so it's kind of been well, well, well ingrained in me, but that's the thing, just allowing kids, not just uh, giving the kids a drink, but leading them to water or whatever the mixed metaphors are, but yeah, the five whys, right. And then, and then you tell them, stop saying why. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's, that's, that's the problem. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I fondly remember all those consulting case interviews I went on and, uh, you know, I recently asked my seven-year-old how many basketballs it would take to fill up Madison Square Garden, and she just said a lot. So, uh, <laughs> we've got, we've got not, some work. To do. Here's the thing: the thing is, she's not wrong. Yeah, yeah. She's like, "Why? Why would you even want to?" Oh my god! Also, a good question. <laughs> I was going to end with a question about how Nabil is on a board. Like, tell me what the other board members think of. <laughs> Is that, oh, it's, is, that, is that a weird final question to hand on? No, no, it'd be fine. No, and Nabil, um, Nabil is doing what a good technologist should be doing. He's taking a lot of folks who don't understand technology, and he's he's trying to get them to think about what what the future could look like. And and there's some things that are. I mean, I think we're both doing this, but we're trying to we're trying to get them to 
understand what's a current imperative versus, you know, where do you want to be five years from now? And it's been, it's been fun. It's been interesting to kind of see, cause we've got, we got the entire age gamut between the executive leadership and the board and just, you know, introducing them to a lot of these concepts that we've talked about, you know, and all of this was pre COVID, but um, just, you know, where, where are we going? Where do we, where do we need to be from a competitive standpoint, but also what technologies are out there as enablers, I think has been a large part of the conversation that he's been driving and we're glad So he's basically it. hosting the podcast in the board meetings. It's perfect. You know what? That's actually pretty funny you say that because he does ask a lot of questions. <laughs> um, it all it all makes perfect sense now. I get it. Exactly. We should, yeah. we should do the lightning round with the, with the board. Ryan, this has been great. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, you guys. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, Appreciate thank it. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.